Hello, and welcome to On Record In Conversation. I'm Jess Collins from the Birmingham Music Archive. In this podcast series, recorded in front of a live studio audience, we explore the vibrant and diverse music history, heritage and culture of Birmingham through the stories of some of those who have shaped and continue to influence the city's musical landscape. In this episode, Adrian Goldberg speaks to Dave Twist. From hanging backstage with Patti Smith to recording an explosive Heartbreakers gig on his small Philips tape recorder, Mosley-born Dave shares tales from his teens in Birmingham and a music career that began in 1977 in punk band Shock Treatment, featuring a pre-Duran Duran John Taylor. There is an old music business joke that goes something like this. What do you call someone who hangs around with musicians? The answer is, of course, a drummer. You're not helping my imposter syndrome here at all. And our guest tonight is a drummer, and a fine one at that. He has more than hung around with some of Birmingham's finest. He was in the city's original punk band, The Prefects. He played in Dada and Shock Treatment with future Duran Duran guitarist John Taylor. And he was in the Hawks alongside Stephen Tintin, or if you prefer, Stephen Lilac Time Duffy. He is, as someone observed to me a little earlier on, our very own musical Zelig. He is still playing now with the Black Bombers, but as well as being a veteran performer, our guest is an inveterate collector of music memorabilia from glam rock onwards, much of it featured on his wonderful Instagram feed. He is a curator, having compiled the new Unseen compilation and was recently dubbed on social media the Carl Chin of Birmingham post-punk. We can, we can edit that bit out, <laughs> can't we? So, Dave, it's all music, music, music then. Where did that love of music start for you? Incredibly, actually, and fortuitously, um, 50 years ago this week. Exactly. Because I was looking at my Instagram uh, yesterday and it popped up that Schools Out by Alice Cooper was released 50 years ago this week and that was the first apparition on top of the pops i guess that um that actually meant something to me um nothing up until that point had really registered but i think they just looked so fantastic and the the message to a 12 year old hollywood schoolboy was fairly welcome that school would at one point be out so uh yeah that that was so 50 years ago to this week was where this Incredible journey began. And what was that 12-year-old schoolboy like then? What was it like in Hollywood? What was your family set up? Um, my dad is, uh, was a Baptist lay preacher. Both of them were in the sort of local amateur operatic society. Both of them could have been professional, I think, if they'd followed that, that sort of route. So music was always in the house. Um, that didn't mean that they were particularly welcoming to the, to the sort of freak show that I brought in on <laughs> magazine covers and 12-inch record covers. And so it was, yeah, it was, it was a musical background, but it was, a, it was a tussle. Yeah, so did you have brothers or sisters? No. So you no. were the only one, Do right? Do people have brothers? Yeah. Uh, yeah, really. yeah, yeah. It seems, it seems yeah, I'm, yeah, I am the classic only child. Yeah. Okay, so there was nobody there to kind of fight the early battles for you. You were the one bringing this rowdy rock and roll music into I the was, house. I was, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And when it became apparent a little bit later on that you might actually want to try pursuing a career in this field, how did the, how did the folks take that? My dad, who I love to bits, I think he's still waiting for, the, uh, for this phase to pass. <laughs> you know, um, they are cautiously supportive, I guess, I would describe it as. And, um, yeah, but it wasn't, it wasn't uh, yeah, there were, there were battles along the way. And, you know, sort of when are you going to get a real job and, and that sort of thing, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, so Alice Cooper then kind of opens the door for you. Yeah. Who else follows in after that? Um... Well, I bought a, I bought a seven-inch single at um, a school fete of um, Street Fighting Man by the Rolling Stones. And I don't think I'd ever really heard the Rolling Stones at that point. And I, t- I took it home, and I, I wasn't used to that kind of murky production, wasn't used to the fact that you couldn't quite work out what the guy was singing. And I remember... I remember actually experimenting with it at different speeds because I thought they, they, this, it can't be what I'm listening to. And that, that kind of opened the door to, I suppose, to more lo-fi recordings because a lot of that was done on a cassette and then they added to it in the studio. And then I suppose from there, the Velvet Underground became a thing. Um, I remember m- my father forcing me to take back the copy of The Velvet Underground and Nico I bought in about 1973 because I think the BBC had done a documentary on Warhol and I think Mary Whitehouse had uh, campaigned against it and it was quite a thing. And, of course, there, there's Junior walking, into the, walking in through the front door with a thing with Andy Warhol written on the front cover. So, yeah, it was, um, as I say, it was a tussle for a while. And what about kids at school then? Did you find a gang who were into this, what, what we can now look back on as kind of pre-punk music, before we'd even heard of punk music? Well, it, it was kind of weird, wasn't it? Because you're, economically, you couldn't go out and buy every record you wanted, I can sort of remember that people used to have the band that they were into, and each one of your friends, you had your friend who was the Zeppelin fan, and you had your friend who was... Dick Holland was the big Doors fan, and um, I guess John Taylor would have been the David Bowie, Mick Ronson, Bebop Deluxe fan, and you kind of, if you wanted to hear a certain person's records, you just, let's go to that house. <laughs> so I was, I was the Alice Velvet Underground guy, and so, yeah, it was... You were the coolest one of the lot. Oh, because <laughs> I can see everybody in the audience is thinking, my God, he's the coolest one. And is that when the collecting of all the memorabilia, the magazines, the badges, the posters started? Yeah, I, it's, it's kind of indivisible for me. And the whole thing with rock and roll, it, it's so... It's always been, to me, such a visual medium. For me, I, you, I don't see how you can have one without the other. You know, if you spend any time on the Steve Hoffman forum where they discuss audiophile issues, you know, they, they, they would poo-poo the idea that the, that the cover might have any more import than the contents. But I can think of several things where actually that might be the the reverse. Yeah, so you started collecting magazines then, posters? I mean, you've got a few obscure items, a few rarities as well. How how did you go about collecting those? Well, they they were less obscure and rare when I bought them, (laughs) I suppose. You know, they were were on the newsstand. Um, Because obviously as the years go by, you do lose stuff. So I've, I've replaced bits and bobs with the dreaded eBay over time. But I won't go into that because... 
Mrs. Twist might be listening. And... <laughs> yeah, and well, some people might be surprised, given the nature of your collection and the fact that it has survived all these years, you've been able to move it from your parents' house to where you live now, yeah. that there is a Mrs. Twist. <laughs> well, ge generally, pe generally people with the unhealthy collecting habits I've got yeah, they go through life in a more solitary way than I have, yes. <laughs> but then again, as we've already established, I was the coolest one. <laughs> and you mentioned John Taylor. Yeah. So that is the John Taylor. How did you get to know John? Was he just at school with you? Um, no, uh, he, he passed the 11 plus. I didn't. I'm classic late developer. Cool, but a late developer. So he went to Redditch, which was the grammar school. And I went to Woodrush, which wasn't. And um, we came together, and I do argue that this might be the roots of new romanticism. We came together over military modelling. <laughs> because my other great interest, pre-rock and roll probably, was, um, was we used to get these little metal figures and paint them up. And if you look at an 1815 French hussar, it's pretty much Simon Le Bon with a, <laughs> with a, with a Busby. You know? so I, I think that it could well have started there. But actually, we, were, we, we, we knew each other in some form before that because I, I, we later found out that his mum and my mum had been in adjacent beds at Sorrento Maternity Hospital. Which is where you were born in 1960? 1960, yes. Yeah. So, so, but you knew John then, grown up in Hollywood, just yes. on the edge of yeah, Birmingham. Yeah, 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 yeah. Were there other groups, other people in your peer group who were important in your rock and roll development? Well, I mean, obviously there was Gareth Owen who went on to establish first Rockers and then the Swordfish record shop in Birmingham. And we lost Gareth in the last year, which was dreadful, obviously. Um... You know, a, a Gareth's mum was younger than, than our parents, so that was a house you could go to and it was a little bit more... The stereo could crank up a little bit there, you know, so, yeah. And Gaz joined shock treatment with us, but he, he never really was that into it. He did the classic Pete Best thing of having his back to the audience when he was playing, and um, there was the three of us, I guess, and then, and then just... Just round the corner was um, Nick Rhodes. So, yeah, it was... There did, was a, did, you, did you hang out with Nick at the time as a yeah, kid? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's a couple of years younger, but his economic power was unbridled. His parents owned a, owned a toy shop, and um, Nick was allowed to descend upon the profits, I think. And um, so he had loads and loads of stuff. And um, Kevin, who's here tonight, he was uh, another of the local... Um, Luminaries. We all used to sneak into Barbarella's and, and whatever before we were supposed to. So, yeah, that's Hollywood 1976 there in a nutshell. There you go. So you're on the edge of Birmingham, but yeah. close enough to get into town for gigs because I remember travelling back on the number 50 with you after, after gigs. Yeah, you know, you, yeah. could get, you could get into town and, and see stuff. Punk rock happened and the whole ethos of punk was getting up and doing it, do it yourself, all that sort of indie ethic. But given the kind of operatic stuff going on in your household, had you got any musical training? Absolutely none. No? No, no desire it, to play it, an it, instrument before? No. no. Um, 
I tried to play a guitar and was very ham-fisted at that, um, gave that up. I was then the church youth group that um, I went to my mum and dad's church youth group. They had a, a couple of bands that kind of arrived to play at those. And one of those was um, a band by the strange name of Odium. But they covered Hawkwind and they covered Mott the Hoople. And that had a couple of guys in who went on to form the prefects. So I kind of knew the people who would go into the Birmingham punk thing at that time. They tried to get me as the bass player for a while. I was hopeless at that. And in the end, I thought, well, I, maybe I could be the singer. And there are maybe a couple of people in the room that might, might have had that inflicted upon them and they still probably bear the scars. And so that was, that was just too, too dreadful. This was, I was this actually was a shock treatment. Yeah, 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 that was just appalling. <laughs> um, and then I thought... Well, I think I, I've seen you describe yourself as a camp Johnny Rotten. Yeah, well, <laughs> more, than, more than camp. Um, and then I thought, well, maybe I can hit things. So I, um, I remember coming back from Birmingham one day because we used to go into the record shops. We must have annoyed the hell out of everybody that worked in the record shops. And in those days, you had these very elaborate displays that were on the walls of record shops. The local sort of display rep would come in and curl the covers round and staple gun them to the wall in fan shapes and all of this sort of thing. And I remember coming home with... Um, you, you used to just blag this stuff. It was cardboard with rock and roll associations. I had to have it. But I remember bringing this one lot home, and it was, I think it was Magma Progressive Rock Band. I had no interest in this display at all. I remember laying these covers out on top of the bed and getting some knitting needles. And I, I think I was kicking the wardrobe to get the bass drum sound and thrashing around and thinking, like, well, this one's the snare, these are the tom-toms, and that's a cymbal. And I kind of thought, well, I'm better at this than I am at the singing and whatever. So um, we went into the music department at Woodrush, probably Gareth and I, and um, there was a 1950s student-level drum kit, possibly even 1940s. It's absolutely barely stood up on its own. And we spirited that away. <laughs> Mr. Mr. Rupert Love, my music teacher, was eminently distractible by a young gentleman. So we, 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 spirited, we spirited that away. He's going to be listening to this in an old people's <laughs> home, isn't he? Um, and, um, I was just thinking he had a great name, didn't he? Rupert Miss, Love, Miss, yeah, yeah. Mr. Yeah. Love. Yeah. And he, um, we got it home. I obviously did, didn't intend returning it because we slopped gloss white paint all over it to minimise it ever being traced. And I, I actually used that kit on, you know, the first Prefects gigs. And it's actually, there's, there's like a live album with that kit on it. And it actually, because of the miking, it sounds phenomenal, but it is basically a toy drum kit. So that's, that's my journey <laughs> from the, the world's worst singer to the world's greatest post-punk drummer. <laughs> yeah. now, for many of us, punk was an epiphany, and it was the, the dawn of a, a sense that we could do something in music, actually make music. The dawning of the end of the age of Aquarius, really. <laughs> yes, but, but for you, though, you'd already been, as we've established, the coolest kid on the block already at school. 
and were into glam, into the velvet. So maybe that wasn't such a big thing for you when punk came. It was just maybe, was it a continuation well, of the stuff you were already well, into? Well, yeah, because you, you kind of got into... Well, I did anyway. You got into punk because you were reading in Sounds and the NME about bands that were citing the New York Dolls, which is another great love of mine, um, as an influence. So you kind of were drawn towards, say, the Sex Pistols because you'd, you, it was kind of becoming known through osmosis that these, this band was in some way connected, you know. Um, I remember seeing the Sex Pistols for the first time on So It Goes, which was a Tony Wilson Manchester TV show. And, but I think the Midlands had one series of it, and luckily it was that series. And um, I must have known that it was supposed to be something because I had my little Philips tape recorder in front of the TV. Because I mean, There's this band that's going to play and they're going to be a bit like the New York Dolls and I should be in at the start of this. And I remember taping it and playing it back and I said, this is awful. You know, I, because... And I think the reason I thought it was awful was because they didn't look like they were supposed to look. They didn't have the Johnny Thunders, Ronettes, Buffons and the sort of stuff that I'd come to expect from a kind of a freak rock and roll band. They, you know, they've got short hair, the lead singer looks like old man Steptoe and I'm, not, I'm really not sure about this at all. And, and then I played it again and then I played it again and I, this is the greatest thing I've ever heard, you know. It was, it was almost over those sort of three or four plays that you sort of realised that the future had arrived, you know. And was that then the first sense that you had that you could do it? The, the, the music magazines were quoting Sniffing Glue and there's that cliche of, you know, here's one chord, here's another, go form a band. Um, me and John, I think, probably thought, that learning the one chord bit sounds a bit boring, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so we just skipped to now form a band. <laughs> and, I mean, li literally, he, you know, we'd just bar the chords. Well, it wasn't a chord, it was just moving your finger up and down the neck. But if, you, if it's loud enough and the fuzz pedal's cheap enough, you've got some kind of Johnny Ramone going on there. And, yeah, that's how we started, yeah. Can you remember your first gig? Yes. Foreshaw Heath Rugby Club. I think okay. it was um, John Taylor's... The home of punk, as it's yeah, known. Yeah, at the end of the fifth form, I think it was the Redditch Leavers Party we played. Um, the, the first professional gig was at Rebecca's. And again, this is the crazy thing. We were playing um, licensed premises nightclubs when, God bless the, the bouncers on the door of Eddie Futrell's nightclubs in Birmingham because they, uh, they would just let you in and... So we got into those sort of places very, and, very and, early. And Rebecca's, for people who don't know, was a small club in Birmingham City Centre. It was the sort of little sister club to Barbarella's, which is the one people know more, I guess, yeah. It's the punk club, yeah. 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 What were you like? Then no, that was a shock treatment. Which yeah, we were, we were terrible. I mean, the prefects who were there to kind of support us, I think Paul Appley still talks about it to this day and he's still clearly traumatised <laughs> by it. I mean, it we, were, we were really awful, so... But it, that was the weird thing. We got, you know, all these very much cooler influences. But there was that kind of year zero thing came in where if you're a punk band, you know, suddenly from being the cool kid who liked the Velvet Underground, I was in a band that was trying to sound like Eater, you know, because that was kind of the thing. And, but 
It only took a couple of months to realise that that probably wasn't the way to go. So post-punk almost started before punk in a way because, because you kind of realised that you weren't, you weren't doing anything with it other than reciting the established cliches that were already cliches even at the start of 1977, you know. So then you developed from that band into a band called Dada with John as well. Yeah. Which, a more in, much more interesting band. Very much so, yeah. Um, again, that's a sort of... And they're on the, the compilation that, that I've just put together. And that, again, is, was recorded on the same little Philips cassette recorder that I taped Anarchy in the UK on. Um, it was people who liked Roxy Music, people who liked um, Eno, me still learning to play drums on the drums, um, but but not knowing how to do it because obviously we still have still to this day I have never had a drum lesson in my life, you know. So you really are feeling your way and finding out what does what, and th that weird sound you make when you're trying to sound like somebody else now gets called post-punk. So, you know, people will listen to stuff like Dada or stuff that I did in the prefects and they say, oh, you must have been into Krautrock. I literally never heard any of those Krautrock records at the time. It, it, it is what somebody who likes Maureen Tucker and thinks that that might be a, an easy way to do it, you know. Well, that, but, that does surprise me because having... Discovered Dada through that album unseen. Yeah, it does sound very crowd rock. Well, it does. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but maybe, hey, maybe those Germans couldn't figure it out either. But they're just keeping <laughs> stum, you know. Yeah. Maybe they all wanted to be the New York Dolls, but they were just too Germanic. <laughs> and where does that lead you then? After Dada, in musical terms, where do you go next? Well. Then, I mean, the, the gig I was saying about at Rebecca's, it's the, I mean, the crazy thing is we've got a chronology here that's going through all these bands, but actually it's like it's two weeks after that and then a month after that. You know, things seem to move so much faster in those days. Um, so after that, there was this band called TVI and that show that we did um, at Rebecca's with Shock Treatment... The next band on was TVI, and TVI were the same age as us, so we didn't have that excuse. And they were phenomenal. They were just this amazing um, garage punk band. And they had figured out how to do the Ramones and the New York Dolls. And, um, and that's where I met a guy called Dave Cusworth, who... Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, and Dave... You know, John and I, you know, just our jaws just dropped, and it's like, oh my god, you know, this this can be done, you know. And Dave was just amazing then. He, he was like he was at the end, at the start. Dave was just Dave, and he was just a natural. And I guess at that stage, neither John or I were a natural. And um, I just thought, I've, I've got to play with these guys, and of course. Drum kits being quite expensive and most drummers in the city not being into all the cool stuff. I kind of inveigled my way into some of these situations, just not so much for any musical ability, but more because 
I just kind of knew what they were talking about and I could connect about certain records and, and things like that. Yeah, so I was kind of in over my head, but loving it, I guess, is what I was doing. Over the years, on and off then, you played with Dave Cusworth in numerous bands. Yeah, you? yeah, bands. yeah. I mean, D Dave, Dave was an incredibly talented songwriter and unlike so many people, he never lost it. From his first album to his last album, there's always something on there that's as good as anything he ever, he ever did. He was somebody that had, in rock and roll documentaries, they always say demons. Um, and yeah, they were, Dave, Dave struggled um, sometimes, and sometimes you could be there, and sometimes you had to step back from it because things got too wild for a Baptist lay preacher's son. Uh, but there was something there that always drew you back, and underneath that, frightening rock and roll exterior which is all a lot of people ever did see in Dave he was just a wonderful bright lad and quite a shy lad you know and um I miss him yeah mm. very much so yeah and you know clearly not a superstar on the level of John Taylor but a, a, an artist who is but when you've revered when you've, and does have a well, kind of yeah, cult I mean, status doesn't you, he? you you can in America you know, there are people that are just, my God, you know Dave Cus. I won't do the accent, but yeah, but they, um, yeah, he's he's very much revered in in certain in certain circles. And the thing with rock and roll, when you're as superannuated as I am, you realise that it is literally a roll of the dice, and it can go one way or the other. And you know, there's absolutely no reason why Dave couldn't have been as big and. John, it might not have happened, you yeah. know. Do you think you, you think luck is the key difference? No. Um, <laughs> well, it can be luck. Luck can get you through the door, but um, you need a lot more than luck to keep it going for 40 years, that's for sure. And I think if, you know, I was used to say about Dave that if, if he had had the rewards that his talents had um, warranted, then maybe we wouldn't have had him for as long as we did because... You know, the, the temptations are there, aren't they? You were in the Prefects briefly. I mentioned them as Birmingham's original punk band. You weren't in them at that time. No, I was, I, I, was a huge, I was a huge fan. I, I loved the Prefects. Um, went to some very, very exciting early Prefects gigs. Um, quite violent. I mean, they, they, they really did provoke a reaction. And I, again, just found myself, because I had this um, broken-down Rupert Love drum kit, I managed to find myself, you know, I, th I, can't, I don't know the act how many months it actually was, but I was doing a John Peel session on this thing before I, you know, really figured out uh, what my other leg does. The, the one that hits <laughs> the wardrobe I got sorted. This one, I am hoping that as the Black Bombers... Progress. I will learn how to work that one. <laughs> uh, it's been incredible for me as a long-time Robert Lloyd fan, uh, and I only saw the, the prefects once. I saw the, the Nightingales many times, but to see that incredible resurgence the band has enjoyed since Stuart Lee and Michael Cummings' documentary, mm. King Rocker, how has that felt to you as somebody who's known Robert all those years and then seen this sudden elevation? Oh, I'm incredibly happy for it, really. I mean... From a personal level, I think that the sort of the kind of zeitgeist thing 
that kind of seem to come together around that. I probably wouldn't be sat here now if I hadn't been in that film and therefore people would have thought, oh, well, he might be able to put a compilation album together. So then he does a couple of interviews on the radio and, and suddenly he sat on a sofa five floors up wondering what the hell anybody's here for, you know. But, so the, the, there's definitely a, a good knock-on for more than just Robert, I would say. Mm. Yeah. But Stuart is... The thing is, he's very, very, very genuine. You know, it's, um, it's a long-term love and help that he's given to that band. Um, and it's, it's lovely to see that that can still happen, you know, that it's something as pure as that. Because nobody would ever have pitched that film as a, a route to huge financial gain, would they? Um, and yet it came together and very successful. What can you tell us about Robert Lloyd then? You've obviously worked with him and then followed his career over many years oh, as, a, as a fan. He's horrible. Um, <laughs> but that, the thi- this, is the thing with, this is the thing with punk rock, isn't it? Everybody, originally, the people who were drawn to it, I guess, you know, were interesting, possibly troubled. Rob Lloyd was a tough cookie, and he still is. And, um, and he's got a very, very clear sense of what he wants uh i mean the worst thing he ever did to me was um we were booked to do that john peel session imagine how nervous i must have literally only been playing the drums for weeks and we packed the gear into the back of the van and i've rehearsed my parts and you know thrashing away on the Magma albums and the wardrobe, and I I know what I'm going to do. And they kept me talking while they spirited my cymbals out of the van because Rob decided he didn't like cymbals. So we arrived arrived in Maida Vale, and we're we're unpacking the gear to take it into the studios. And I said, oh, my God, where where are my cymbals? Oh, we took them out. And he still laughs about this, and I still pretend to find it funny, but I don't. Um, and, There's a few beads of sweat so, forming on yeah, your forehead. Exactly, and so, so that right there is another, another reason why I invented Krautrock, because what, what the hell else could you do but thump away on the toms, you know? And the, the band that kind of had the, the biggest influence that you were involved with was, was the Hawks, was it? You were with, with both Stephen and John Taylor? Well, no, jo- John wasn't in the Hawks, and thereby hangs a terrible tale. So John was in the original Duran Duran with Stephen. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that's a, that's a part of my story where I don't come out of it with very, very good grace. And in fact, John and I have only... We're still working our way past it. Uh, and I'm, I'm seriously not joking. Go um, on, then. Tell us. Um, but, no, it was... Uh, some other boys made me do it, you know. that, that TVI were, had their eye on Stephen as a potential singer, and I copped a lot of the blame because I was the person who knew both people. Um, I think my memory chooses to be hazy in just how guilty or not guilty I was, but I know I caused a lot of pain... Um, and I'm not proud of it, but the upshot is that, I guess, that the, the Duran Duran that I was instrumental in destroying 
would never have been the huge sort of world-dominating pop phenomenon that they were because they were a kind of a strange post-punk band. But they were great, actually, which is, I suppose, why we were interested in members from there. Um, but, one, yeah. one of the few bands on the scene with a clarinet. Yeah. Has to be well, we, yeah, we... <laughs> But to my shame, we even stole the clarinetist because um, <laughs> he was a rather good bass player as well. And yeah, so that, that, was, that formed the Hawks. And then the Durans also rehearsed in the same house because it was some kind of bizarre vocalist swapping thing. It was a Brian Ricks farce. Um, <laughs> but you essentially, you broke up the original Duran Duran in your desperate pursuit of the rock and roll. Well, I'm, I won't have it that it was just me, because <laughs> let, let's face it, this entire story of me being that dreadful person relies on the fact that Stephen Duffy had absolutely no willpower of his own. And as someone that has met Stephen Duffy and has had to um, negotiate with him, you'll realise that that is not the case. <laughs> so, yeah, I think, I think we can minimise my blame. So who got the best of the deal then? As a music fan, which, which do you prefer, Stephen Duffy and the Lilac Time or Duran Duran? Your mate Stephen Duffy or your mate John Taylor? What do you mean, who do I prefer? Uh, musically. Oh, musically? Yeah. Well, Stephen Duffy. But having said that, uh, Duran Duran, I've come to realise in more recent days, may have their merits. <laughs> um, uh, what was interesting all the way along this, uh, Dave, is that you know, your mates, some of them anyway, are, are going up into the stratosphere becoming superstars. When did it hit you that you were not going to have that same rock and roll journey? Well, I, I think this is, this is the issue, though, of, of the kind of people that I liked, whether it would be the sort of Velvet Underground or... I don't think that I ever thought... It sounds embarrassingly a cliche, but I was always in it... For, for that music which I liked and that image which I liked. And Duran Duran weren't that. And so I kind of wasn't particularly jealous in any way because I was still doing the music I, I wanted to do with, I guess, with the people I wanted to do it with. But it was, um, it was surreal because obviously, you know, they... they you enter a kind of a vortex when, you, when, when you're signed to a major, or certainly in those days, and they were whisked away from us, and they didn't come back for sort of two years, really. Um, and when they came back, they were the biggest band on the planet. And you were... I remember there was that phenomenon of the Durani, the sort of girl... Girl Duran fan, and there were thousands of them, like 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 sort of roller mania, and it was Duran mania. Their uniform was a little sort of fedora hat, and they'd roll up the sleeves of their sleeve, roll up the sleeves of their blazers. And um, you used to come up to Birmingham on a Saturday to skulk around the record shops or whatever, and there were thousands of young women dressed as your school friend. <laughs> which, which was really, really surreal. I remember him telling us about... Because we must have been speaking again at this point. I remember them talking about them bringing Times Square in New York to a complete standstill. You know, that I think they'd done a signing in Tower Records. Steve will know. Tower Records, probably. And they, they, did a, they did a signing there. And they had to be smuggled out the back. And it, it was complete Beatlemania pandemonium. And when you're hearing this from, from somebody that that you know very well. It, it was just surreal, but it was so surreal that I don't... 
think it possibly impacted that much. It was just like this kind of weird thing that was going on off stage, you know. In the meantime, you've talked about the visual, you know, the importance of visuals to rock music, and for you it being indivisible mm. from the sounds, really, all one thing. Yeah. You obviously had this other thing going on in your life because you became an art teacher. Yeah. And, and you designed a lot of the posters and so on for your various bands as well. Was that something you'd always done, had that flair? Well, uh, I used to do it with, with... I used to design posters for, for TVI and Dada... Um, used to do those in the school art room and I was possibly you know one of the few people who got a broken down drum kit I was one of the few people who figured out how to use a primitive prit stick and and felt pen and and put stuff together like that and it a few people seemed to really like what I did so I, I kind of got into doing sleeves for stuff that Dave did and stuff that, um, you know, for other people as well. Rob Lloyd always used to come back to me when he, when he was running the Vindaloo label. I did the, the, the logo for Terry and Jerry, I remember, and stuff like that. So, yeah, I started to do that and then learned how to use Photoshop and that when it came in. We're, jump, we're only jumping about four decades there. But, <laughs> but um, yeah, and then it's, it's just stayed doing it, really. Teaching, yeah, yeah, that was weird. <laughs> I did that for 20-something years, and then I gave it up. And I thought to myself the other day, how on earth did I used to do that? People used to come in the room, and I used to talk, and things happened. And well, that I was being an art teacher, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, I was an art teacher, yeah. Um, yeah, it, it was only two years ago, and it seems like... It already seems like such a long time ago. You know, the pandemic arrived, and... It seemed like a good time to change again. I mean, you're still doing the obviously the album designs, the unseen compilation. Is yeah, a, is yeah, a, that's is a Dave Twist my magnum opus. I think that is. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I particularly like doing that one, the layout and everything for that. That was going back really to a, a scene that I was part of, that you were part of, around the Star Club in Birmingham, around the turn of the eighties. Mm. What what was significant about the Star Club? that they'd let you play. Um, I mean, Rebecca's was fairly short-lived. Barbarella's didn't last that much longer than 79 or 80, I don't think. Barb's was more for bigger bands. So you were always on the lookout for a space that would let you set up and play. And they were just, they were just very accommodating there. And when we put the Hawks album together, Stephen... Um, compiled a list of all the gigs that the Hawks had done. This is the recently released, obviously, Five Believers album. Yeah, 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 sorry, Hawks, yeah. And, and I looked at the list of, of gigs we'd done, and we'd done shamefully few, actually, um, but a good 30% of them seemed to be at the Star Club, so it was, yeah, it was a great place, and I saw the early Dexies there, I saw the Nightingales, which was the band that, that came out of the Prefects, and they, they were filmed there for, um, was it an arena documentary? Arena special, yeah. Yeah, yeah. With, with John Peel and John Waters there. So, yeah, it was a bit of a, a hotbed. And, I, and there, sir, was you as well. This is with, with Lowdown International. <laughs> and you talked earlier on, Dave, about you only ever did it because you loved doing it, playing the music that you liked and kind of having the look that you, you liked to yeah. see. And you're still doing it, aren't you, with your band, The Black Bombers? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, there's... Obviously, I carried on through the 80s and, and, and I was 
played with the Scarecrows, played with the Filipinos, that all had their notable merits. Um, uh, but, yeah, the, the Black Bombers is, is just um, it's a group of friends, people I've known for you know, quite a long time in, in, in various different bands, and they asked me to... They asked me to join, and I'm having the time of my life with it, to be honest. The area we haven't touched on, I suppose, which in this bizarre jumpstart chronology was my, was my time I spent as a rock and roll manager. And I had brushes with um, the business end of things in London during that time. I was helping to manage my daughter's band for a few years, and... That was a, an eye-opener to the world that I hadn't had an, an inroad into myself. And suddenly, a lot of the decisions... Because when you, when you haven't experienced the, the dreadful London A&R department um, people, you, you really don't understand why bands and people friends and people make such strange well apparently strange decisions and why musical styles change away from what you think they knew you knew they wanted to play and things like that and I think that that experience really unlocked for me a lot of and it's probably why you know it sort of enables me to look at things like the Duran thing with with without any jealousy or malice because having seen what you have to go through and having seen who you have to deal with because these these people don't change over the years and over the generations there there's a fantastic film called smashing time that was filmed in the 60s with a script by george melly which is a satire on the london music business and i, I as we travel through it poppy and i we kind of my God, these people are different, but they're exactly the same. And if they were the same in the 90s, they must have been there in the 80s. So I kind of know what people suffered. And I genuinely, genuinely, hand on heart, God's honest truth, am not sad at all that I didn't go through it myself. Mm -hmm. that, your daughter's mum was Poppy and the Jezebels. It was, yeah. yeah, yeah. And uh, one final thought. It's also worth noting that your creative artistic side still flourishes because you are one of the brains behind Rotunda Industries who make fantastic T-shirts. Thank God you've mentioned that because like Mick one, is in the audience. Like the one that you're wearing now. Let's have a look. Let's have a look. Is, I've got a lovely Mr Egg T-shirt at home. Yeah, That's yeah. one of yours as well, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, there we go. Yeah, you've got your Rotunda Industries. Yeah. There you go, creating well, to the... Oh, there's another one there, an audience member. There we go, showing, there we uh, go. Because, well... Oh, yes, it's the two buses, isn't yeah. it, which is a take-off of the old <laughs> Sex Pistols poster, yeah. yeah. But, uh, uh, you know, as, as you'll have realised, as, as sort of as nervous as I was about doing this tonight and, and sort of... Birmingham people don't like pushing themselves forward and it, it, you kind of feel very bashful and, and, and this is why I'm kind of just looking that way while I'm <laughs> rambling along. Um, and there is that mentality in the city that we don't like to almost blow our own trumpet or whatever. And the, the great thing about Rotunda Industries is kind of saying, no, actually, some of this stuff is really cool um, and I'd like to celebrate it, I'd like to wear it. So, yeah, it's fighting against our, our natural inhibitions as brummies. And winning. 
Of course, women. <laughs> Brilliant. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr Dave Twist. Thank you, please. On Record, In Conversation is produced by Siobhan Stevenson for the Birmingham Music Archive and presented by Birmingham 2022 Festival with the generous support of Arts Council England and the National Lottery Heritage Fund. Oh.